another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler It really doesn't matter Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, we'll manage through the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't come into you from Arlington, Texas, once again, uh, from my home office, now that I'm here full-time for you guys, five days a week, uh, about an hour a day, it is Friday, and it is Friday the, uh, what is it, the 22nd today. 2010, and this is episode 362 of the Survival Podcast. It is going to be another call-in Friday from the listeners. I have some great stuff today. I've got questions about 22 Dust Shot. I've got comments about Haiti. I've got people asking about productive trees, dealing with poor drainage in their soil, dealing with corporate downsizing, uh, packing a bob or a bug-out bag, if you will, in a proper order, some considerations with that. Um, I've got questions about antibiotic squirrels in the attic, uh, and I've even got questions about whether we're going to have our own silver coin in the future uh, for Survival Podcast. So I had a bunch of cool stuff today, so I want you to hang with me through the uh, housekeeping. Let's knock that out quick. Number one, I'm going to tell you right now. Yesterday, I ran a listener appreciation contest for a t-shirt, actually two t-shirts, number 10 and number 100. I get crybabies all the time. I don't get a chance to win when you run a contest, because I don't until it, you know what, nobody won the number 100 yet, so I'll leave it at that. It's up to you to take that and do what you need to do with it. All right, before we go any further, though, let's take care of our sponsors today. I have two sponsors of the day for you. Sponsor of the day, number one, Western Botanicals. I want to tell you, I'm getting a lot of great feedback from people who are ordering from Western Botanicals and getting absolutely great product and great service, so I'm glad that they're here as a sponsor. I'm also getting a lot of people telling me that they're using the 25% discount uh, with the preferred membership that they get as an MSB member, a member support brigade member that are really happy with that too and have already paid back their MSB membership with just one or two orders. So um, <clears throat> they're a good company. They're giving you the best product that's available. And, um, you know, I've had Kyle on the show, Dr. Kyle uh, Christensen on the show, and he really cares about people. This is not just uh, a money-making thing for him. In fact, uh, their website's actually a very small part of the business that they do. They wanted to be able to offer what they have to people outside of uh, their general area, but they do about 95% of their business uh, in the you know offline world, in, in a real brick-and-mortar world. That means they're accustomed to looking customers in the eye. And they try to treat them the same way on the on the uh, internet. So I'll tell you what, I can highly recommend them for a source of um, of your herbal uh, supplements, herbal medications, and things like that, and a source of knowledge as well. So please check them out. Uh, next up today. Tactical response gear, James Jaeger's operation. Oh, James is out at the shot show right now, finding new good stuff to add to his site and to his store. Uh, James is an amazing guy. He's been all over the world. Um, he's been, you know, right in the middle of the fight, so to speak, on several occasions. Uh, I really recommend that you check out his training, his training DVDs, and the products available at Tactical Response. Um, one of our forum people put it one time this way, Tactical Response is like a crack dealer's addict if you're into tactical stuff. So uh, uh, really check those guys out. With that, let's move on from there. Next up, 
the store. Check out our store. Check out our T-shirts. Hey, we're sold out of challenge coins. I'm going to question about that, so I'm going to I'm going to leave that for now. But right now, we're already having to order our second run of challenge coins. The first ones haven't even shipped yet. So you guys do seem to like the gear that we have in the shop. That's really cool. Um, so make sure you're checking out the shop and seeing what you can find there that uh, maybe you'll enjoy for yourself. Next up, um, get involved with our forum. I'd really appreciate it if every person who listens to this show would set up an account at the forum and just start checking things out because I know it will help you. That's why I say that. Um, I lost the ego thing about how many members I had a long time ago because the forum's just grown so fast it really hasn't mattered. Um, we have over like 4,500 members now. Um, but I want everybody on the forum because I want you to find people in your area I want you to get more information, and I want you to get more than I can possibly give you. I'm one man, and sometimes I'll be wrong. Remember, I reserve the right to be wrong, and uh, the forum's a good place to extend your knowledge and extend your relationships. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Uh, if you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, you'll also get a tremendous amount of discounts. Uh, one I mentioned already today, uh, 25% off of every order from Western Botanicals with their free preferred membership. Um, you know, you get a free lifetime membership to Safe Castle. That's a $29 membership right there. There's 79 bucks for a $50 membership. So, uh, you can support the show at 20 cents an episode and get your money back on day one. I also want to point this out. I hear from people once in a while that say, man, I feel bad. I'm not, I'm not a members brigade member. You, you do all this stuff and, you know, but we have, we've lost a job or we're dealing with this or, you know, all types of different things in life events. If you're deeply in debt, if you're struggling, do not send me any money. And I don't say that to be, you know, come off like a good salesperson. I mean that. Don't do it. Fix your problems in your life first. Take the information that I give you and take the opportunities in your life and correct them. And when you get solid on your feet and you get somewhere along the road to being prepared and then you want to start supporting the show, consider doing it then. And when you start, you know, actually spending money on your preps and you can take advantage of the discounts and you can make it profitable, do it then. Do it when it makes sense. Do it when it's right. Don't do it out of some sense of obligation to me. Um, do it do it for the right reasons. And taking care of your family first is important. If it wasn't, I wouldn't do this show every day. Okay, let's move on from there. Let's go ahead and let's take our first uh, call of the day. This is a pretty cool one. Uh, it's a little different than what I usually get, but that's why I put it on. Hello, Jack. This is Steve in Arkansas. Uh, I have a question. What is the best way to deal with a rodent infestation? I have... Unfortunately, squirrels have moved into our attic. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, as I said, that's definitely a question I have not had before, uh, but it is a situation that I saw a grandfather deal with. I'm going to give you a couple different ideas here, um, and some people won't like some of them. Uh, Not really a lot I can do about the fact that you're not going to like some of them. Uh, one is going to be to get good old-fashioned industrial-sized rat traps, drill a hole in them, and uh, bait them with peanut butter, and uh, wire them to various locations in your crawl space where those guys are and start trapping them and killing them out that way. It is not a good solution, though. It is a, it is a, all it, that really will do is start some kind of population control. Let's examine what's going on. Right now it's wintertime, it's cold, that's why these squirrels are in your attic. They're in your attic because it's a more suitable environment for them than it is outside. 
If it was 100 degrees out like it is in the Arkansas summer, uh, it would probably be about 150 degrees in your attic. There won't be a squirrel in your attic then. So if you wanted the natural solution, it would be to go up into your attic um, in the middle of the daytime with every light in the house off, look for light, expect the outside. you got to do this anyway and find every single location where there's an entrance point into your attic. How are they getting in? And map those and make a drawing of everywhere the squirrels can possibly get in. And make a plan to close those openings up. Now, obviously, you don't want to close them up when they're inside. They're going to be pretty likely to chew through whatever you do to get out. Because um, the desire to get out when they need to is going to be heavier than a desire to get in. So that's a keep out measure anyway. But map that with a drawing and be prepared to take action once you evict the squirrels one way or another, be it through trapping or some of the other ideas I'm going to give you. If you could tolerate them this long, I wouldn't do it, but I know some people want to be natural. All you have to do is wait till you know, those 100-degree day come, days come. Uh, now, the, 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 the thing is, how much damage will they do? How much droppings and stuff will be there? Again, I wouldn't take this approach, but if you just wait till it's hot out, and go up there and plug all the entrance points, you'll never deal with them again until they find a new way in. So that's the big thing is being able to keep more squirrels from getting in uh, once you get the ones out. You've got to take care of that. The other And the other side of this is you better not put any of your preps up there. Uh, most people don't use an attic, but you know uh, anything that's edible, they'll get into. They'll chew through it. Um, they'll chew through everything up to gal. You know they can't get through galvanized steel and things like that. But I've seen them get through uh, uh, even a PVC bucket uh, pretty well. So be careful what you put up there while they're there because they'll get into it. Now here's how I saw a grandfather get rid of them one time. He made basically a smoke pot. And uh, opened all the windows in the house so that he wasn't in danger of, like, suffocating us and turned a couple fans on. And then he went up in the attic and he let the smoke pot run for a couple hours and just basically filled the attic with smoke. My grandmother was not freaking pleased at all uh, by this because it made the house smell like smoke for quite a while. Um, but he used kind of a, a little tiny smudge pot. It didn't really make, like, smoke damage or anything out there, but it did make the attic smoky, and it pretty well evicted them, and then he had found a couple spots, and he boarded them up once they were out. So that would be a, one way to do it. A way that you could do it today, and some people are really not going to like this, uh, due to chemicals or what have you, but I think it would work. Remember, all we have to do is make the environment inside less hospitable than the environment outside for the squirrel, and he'll do what squirrels do. He'll move. He'll move to a place of greater comfort. So if you went to the store and you got a couple of those foggers, like those roach foggers or insect foggers, and had a day where you took the dogs and the kids and everybody out of the house and went up into your attic and fought, you know, put two foggers up there and just let it run, um, it'll pretty much run them out of there. And then you have to immediately come in and back, you know, once, once you've given them time to escape, uh, go in and backfill all the weak spots. So you've got to identify your weak spots first. There's a couple ideas that I have for you. One is uh, probably a little bit dangerous and could make your house stink, uh, but it did work for my grandfather, and it didn't stink forever, and I think it had to do with how much smoke he actually used. Uh, there's another one that is a completely natural solution, which is, um, you know, just let nature take its course, and they'll leave when it gets too hot up there. Um, you know, the other thing I guess you could do is do the trapping. Uh, if you do the trapping in conjunction with the, the boarding up of any uh, escape routes, um, you'll probably actually have very effective trapping. 
Because what will happen is that they won't be able to get out easily. Uh, it's still warm in there right now. Uh, they'll become highly dependent on any food you use for bait, and you can trap them out that way. Uh, or last, you know, but not least, is, you know, running some bug bombs up there. And uh, I'll tell you how this that idea came to me. Uh, we had a problem with some creature. We never actually saw what it was chewing into the floor of our home in Arkansas. It had gotten underneath the home and was was down under there, and we could never find it, never see what it was, never saw any droppings, but it was quite loud. Um, we opened it up so it was easy to get out, and I pitched three of them under there like smoke grenades. And uh, we waited a day, and we closed it back up, and I've never heard the sound again. So I do know it'll work. Now, will it kill them? I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be smart enough to leave before there's toxic effects setting in. That could end up with something dying in your attic. Uh, but my instinct is uh, what you'll do is you'll create an environment where they won't want to be there and they'll leave. I guess it could backfire. Maybe those things don't work on squirrels and uh, you could end up killing all their fleas and making their lives better for them. But I, I doubt that. So there's there's a few different ways. Uh, best I can do for you, I'm not a... Uh, an exterminator or a, uh, a a rodent control specialist, but at least they're squirrels and not rats. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, you can trap them and eat them. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next question. My name is Zachary from uh, Wichita, Kansas, and I have a question about uh, storing medication. I've heard uh, more than one person uh, in the industry say that it's a good idea to store medication not only over the counter and anything you have prescriptions for like maintenance medication but also say storing uh, antibiotics or storing other things that might come up uh, useful in emergency do you think that's a good idea and how would you suggest if you think it's a good idea a person go about getting antibiotics or something like that that they don't necessarily take all the time or have an opportunity to store because they're, you know, having to go buy it or they have a prescription for it. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, first, let me say that you can't engage in any illegal activity um, because you you run the risk of ending up incarcerated or getting a doctor in trouble or things like that. But there there are some things that you can do. Number one. Um, I live with a woman who's a nurse. Uh, she's my wife and been my wife for many years. And, you know, one of the things that she's always been frustrated with is how many times doctors, because parents ask, will prescribe antibiotics in situations where the antibiotics are not not necessary. Kid has a cold or some type of viral infection, um, and an antibiotic is for a bacterial type of infection. Um, so... Often, just by asking when you're sick, you can get antibiotics that maybe um, you could set aside for when you actually need them. All right, so I don't think that's illegal in any way, shape, or form because uh, they are prescribed to you and then intended to be used by you. Um, vacuum sealing and keeping them in cool temperatures is probably the best way to extend them. Um, the ones you don't really want to store long term, I'm, I'm told, are anything in the tetracycline family because they can basically kind of mutate into things that can cause uh, different types of sicknesses and illnesses that may be worse than what you're treating with it. But other forms of antibiotics tend to generally simply lose their effectiveness, not become dangerous. Now, when I say tetracycline, I'm talking about the entire tetracycline family. I'm not going to go through and, and, and embarrass myself by all the Latin names I can't pronounce, but you may want to look that up and see what specifically you do not want to store past its expiration date for use as an antibiotic. Um, I can tell you that at any time that I've been injured 
and I've been offered any type of pain medication or antibiotic or anything like that. Even if I didn't think I needed it, I was always willing to accept the prescription, and if I didn't use it, I would put it away in case I needed something in an emergency situation. That's the, the best I can do there. I can also tell you that it is possible sometimes to acquire uh, antibiotics for treatment of animals, and an antibiotic is an antibiotic is an antibiotic. Now, I wouldn't start self-medicating with, um, let's say, an antibiotic that's designed to treat fish, um, but in a major end-of-the-earth shit-at-the-fan scenario, if I had a stockpile of it, it would certainly be better than not having anything at all. Um, you also probably want to learn a lot about herbal medications. There's a lot of things that can be done to uh, reduce and draw out infections, especially from wounds. Uh, Dr. Christensen has, uh, so he's given me this whole recipe for um, creating a salve that specifically draws out infections. Um, and I'm going to eventually do a YouTube video of exactly how to do that and using uh, uh, things that are pretty much available all over uh, the country that can be found wild and in gardens. Um, I can't do it right now with wild harvested stuff. I may actually just order some stuff from him, some whole herbs from, from him, because most of the things that I need... Um, they're not real prevalent in the in, in January. So these are things that, while widely available, tend to die off when it goes down to single-digit temperatures and freeze. And <clears throat> we're starting to have some of the clover and some of the grass pop back up in the yard now, but pretty much everything was brown a week ago. Um, so there are some other things that you can do. Now, I've had people ask me, can we make antibiotics by creating mold or whatever? Um, I'm not going to get into that. I think I'm more likely to get you killed than saved if I try to get into that. If anybody's like an expert in that type of biochemistry and would like to talk about maybe not how to do it today, but how to know how to do it, you know, if we have a real end-of-the-earth type thing, how to be that type of a chemist that could actually create things like that, um, let me know. I'll, I'll have you on the show and we can talk about that. Other than that, that's the best I can do for you on that without advocating any illegal behavior. Hey, Jack. You've mentioned these uh, challenge coins. I want to know, are they going to be silver? Because I think that would be a great little survivalist preparedness uh, memento. I mean, a lot of people advocate keeping a silver coin just in case you ever found yourself in a situation where you couldn't use U.S. currency or your electronic credit cards, whatever. Um, I think it would be a really wise uh, decision to carry around a survival podcast challenge coin made out of silver. I'd definitely be willing to pay for one of those and it'd kind of be like, hey, are you prepared? You got your one ounce of silver? Anyways, just a thought. I'm going to do this one quick, and I'm just going to do it on the air because I get this one a lot by email from people. Um, here's the deal with that. Um, Tiffany and Rich and I, uh, Tiffany and Rich, you know, TW and Sister Wolf from the Forum, and they run the uh, Survival Podcast Gear Shop, have looked at doing this. And um, when we look at the cost of the coin die and everything, we can use the one from the challenge coins we already have. That would make a silver coin of roughly uh, two ounces. And um, when we look at the current spot price of silver and we look at doing a large-scale buy to be able to produce, let's say, 500 of these things, it's a huge risk, and we're going to have to sell at a price point to be profitable, even a little bit profitable, that puts us out of the range of most of the market. I, as I look at this, I really don't know how people that do this type of business make a decent profit. It's it's hard for me to understand because with the minting fees, we're looking at the cost of the silver, buying at bulk, uh, which is basically spot, plus $5 a coin uh, to push us over spot. So 
We could do it. We'd be producing large two-ounce coins. Uh, I can have Tiffany figure out exactly what we would have to sell them at. Uh, let me know that. I could put it out there for pre-order, and if we had enough pre-orders, we might consider doing it. But right now, we're probably not going to do that because it's not profitable. It's not just not profitable. It would, it would make us take a loss to be able to do it in current market conditions. If silver drops for some reason down to 12 bucks, you can bet I'll buy a, a stockpile of it. And I think that's what maybe a lot of these folks that are minting coins today did is they stocked up on silver when the market was lower and now they can sell at a reasonable profit. I'm not sure. I've also considered possibly teaming up with Tea Party Silver and Mary Beth and licensing the rights to the TSP logo there. Um, but that comes with its own set of consequences. I would feel better about that. I don't want to compete with my advertisers. Um, but short term, we're not going to have a silver challenge coin. Last on that, silver doesn't work good for a challenge coin. Now, having a silver coin, great idea. Uh, but a silver challenge coin, challenge coins are designed to be carried in pockets, you know, carried around. Silver's a soft metal. It really needs to be protected. A challenge coin is something you throw up on a bar or uh, on a card table and say, hey, where's yours, that type of thing. So it needs to be more utilitarian. Um, so we're not going into the silver business anytime soon. Um, sorry, guys, I can't do it economically feasibly, and I'm not going to do something that's going to end up as a loss because uh, that will hurt the ability to serve you rather than enhance it. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Jeff from St. Louis. Uh, on the forum, my handle is Lost Airplane. I have a quick question. If you were going to pack a bug-out bag, a backpack, is there a particular way you do it to make it most functional? There are the ways that you wouldn't do it because something could go wrong and something that I'm packing away might contaminate something else or ruin something else. Um, thanks. You know, probably one day what I need to do is sit down with one of my bug out bags with a camera and make a YouTube video for you guys to show you how I do this. But here's the quick answer. If it can leak, right, then it goes into a second packaging, which is generally going to be, if it's not used often, um, a vacuum-sealed, uh, strong vacuum-sealed bag. Right? So whatever it's packaging, plus in there. So anything that can leak, that's how it's going to get packaged. If it's used often, then it's going to, but it could leak, it goes into a second, uh, a secondary packaging, and that's going to be a Ziploc bag. Um, I actually, um, think that that's probably one of the better solutions for most of the things because the problem with a vacuum sealed packaging is once you open it, if you're not going to use all of that item, right, then you can only basically roll it back up and tape it up. Where if you have a Ziploc bag, it's easier to reseal. So anything that can leak, two forms of packaging. The additional things that you need to do is you need to th- like sit down with all your stuff. Lay it all out on the floor, make it all as compact as possible, and start making piles. Pile one is, these are things that I might use in a non-emergency situation. Okay, These are things that bug repellent, a flashlight, a knife, things that just, you know, we're at the park and, oh, look, we need to hang that up and nobody has a knife and I don't have my knife on me. Yank it out. Um, Car breaks down on the side of the road. Um, whatever, flashlight. So all the items that are things that you might use in a very minor inconvenience situation or a total non-emergency just as a convenience item um, need to go into one pile. The next pile is going to be um, all of the things that you would probably need to rely on relatively quickly in emergency situations. Uh, this would be maybe if you carry a weapon, extra ammunition. 
this would be your food, and specifically your food that's, you know, I think there should be two types of food in your bug out bag. Food that requires no preparation and food that requires preparation because the preparation requirement food allows you to carry more food Okay, and if you're stuck somewhere, it gives you something to do to occupy your mind. So some of like the freeze-dried mountain house pouches or something like that would go there. But maybe some beef jerky and things that, anything that's kind of, as soon as the problem hits, I might need right away. So some water and things like that, whatever you carry your water or purify water with. And then your last pile is your long-term needs. Create that pile. I'm not going to tell you what goes in each pile because this is more about you and your situation than anything else. But what that's going to allow you to do is take your long-term needs and put them into your bag first and stack them deep. Take your secondary needs and put them into your bag. And then ideally, most if not all of your primary needs should go in external pockets on the bag. I like a bag that's not just a single bag, right, but it's got external pockets and, and modular and a modular approach to it. Then you might also even create, let's say, a little mini bug out bag with little mini the stuff you, you know, maybe it's some of the things like your, your, your backups to things that are deeper and things like that. And you might make two of those with two different reasons for it and attach those to the outside of that bag. Now you have a modular approach and you've organized things in a way where if I need we went to the soccer game, and everybody's getting bit by mosquitoes, and hey, you know what I keep off in my bug out bag, I can open up an external pocket and yank that out. Where, you know, uh, I also believe keep your stove, if you have like a small micro stove or something, and some fuel, and an outside pot pack as well. Um, that would be, you know, hey, we're, we're, we went to an event, right, everybody's leaving, uh, it's going to take two hours to get the hell out of here. Hell with it. Oh, drop the tailgate on the truck, whip out the camp stove, make up a little bit of food, and eat, <laughs> and sit back and listen to the radio while everybody leaves, or we need fuel and heat fast. right? So that's kind of my overall mile-high view of how to do that. But specifically, anything that can leak needs to have two leak-proof containers. Two is one, one is none. So if it comes in, a, obviously it's initial packaging, it should be leak-proof. Right, anything's leakable. You buy it. Buy it. It generally comes sealed. You know, you don't buy it with an open lid on the top of it. You don't. You don't go buy a bottle of beer with the cap off of it unless you're at a bar and going to drink it now. Right. So, same applies to anything else that could leak. So that's one layer of packaging. Put a second layer of packaging around it. Also, look at how anything that can be damaged can be cushioned by other items in there. All clothing needs to be also in secondary packaging. Um, I don't like vacuum sealing it again, but they make these, now Ziploc has these two-gallon bags, and you can pretty much fit a day's worth of clothing into them. I can also tell you that there's a simple way to kind of vac seal, I guess you would call it, or compress seal um, things that doesn't require a vacuum sealer or any real fancy equipment. You take a standard garbage bag. You put anything in there like clothes, gloves, socks, stuff like that, stuff that will collapse down. And put it in the bottom of the garbage bag. Take a standard vacuum cleaner. Pull the top up, right, till you've got it where you can hold it in your hands. Take the attachment tube, you know, the thing like you use for sweeping the stairs with or whatever. Stick it inside that bag and grip it and hold on to it. Turn the vacuum on. And it'll suck that thing down flat like you won't believe. Keep your hand on it. Pull the vacuum nozzle out. Tie it up. And that will act as a compression. Now, is it something that's sort of easily ruptured? 
Probably, but take another heavy contractor grade garbage bag. Now you have two garbage bags. Fold that up around it. Don't tie that one, right? Leave that kind of just folded, maybe tape it so that it stays closed and neat. And now you've got clothing compressed very, very well, but you're also carrying two garbage bags that can be used for things like emergency tarps and shelters. And the first one is completely unaltered, can be easily removed, and your clothes can still be protected by the second one. Uh, just some ideas. If you wanted to go all out, take the two-gallon Ziploc bag, don't zip it, put the clothes inside it, put it inside the garbage bag, shrink wrap the garbage bag, take the second garbage bag, put it on the outside. Now you have two garbage bags and a resealable bag, and that resealable bag can be used for things like carrying water if necessary. The beauty is putting all the stuff in the Ziploc bag or doing it with the two garbage bags, they take up still almost the same amount of space. And if you're compressing them with the vacuum, they probably take up less space than they do in most people's bug-out bags. So there's some bug-out bag tips. We'll do another bug-out bag show someday. But those are the basic rules that I follow to keep things organized, accessible, clean, and dry. Hi, Jack. This is Tim from Missouri, and I'm planting my spring garden. And uh, last year I started several of my plants indoors and had not much success with that uh, had a few things that uh, grew uh, however most of it didn't and I ended up buying a lot of plants from you know garden centers or whatnot and I was wondering if you had any suggestions for starting uh, plants indoors to you know increase the success uh, love the show keep up the good work thanks I'd be 99% certain that your problem is solar exposure. You're not getting enough light to your, your seedlings. Uh, it's probably the biggest issue that you have with trying to start seedlings in a home without uh, the use of a greenhouse or very highly efficient UV lighting. I have a couple solutions for you. One is build a simple cold frame, a cold frame which is simply like basically a mini greenhouse on the ground that you can put your seedlings in with a, with a glass top that can be open during the day when it gets too hot and closed down at night to keep them warm. Um, if you need additional supplemental heating with that, uh, you can uh, put some compost in it, uh, some like about midterm broke down compost, and that breakdown activity will continue to heat the ground, and that, that can work for you as well. Um, Missouri gets pretty cold still this time of year. So another solution is to build a cold frame, uh, and when it's when it's cool enough outside to damage your plants, but the sun's out, put the plants out in the cold frame uh, with it closed down. When it's warm enough outside to have the seedlings out in the sun, just set them out in the, the sun in the open um, uh, and give them some solar exposure. You're not going to get your plants burning this time of year because the sun's not real intense. It's low in the sky. That's another reason your windows may not be very efficient for starting seeds because even if you get good sunlight into that window, if it's only for maybe an hour a day, it's not enough light. So you can create a situation where you put your seeds out in the mornings and bring them in in the evenings to protect them from the overnight freezes on any day where it's not too cold for them to be outside. That said, in, in your area right now, even during midday, unless you're up above the 50s, I would recommend some level of protection. I just did a video on YouTube of plants that I actually have in the ground, but you can do the same thing without building a cold frame. Go out and buy yourself two or three 10-gallon fish tanks. They sell at Walmart for about 8 to 10 bucks. And you have a mini greenhouse. During the day when your seeds are outside, set them somewhere where they're going to get good sunlight through most of the day and put your fish tanks over them whenever the temperature is, let's say, going to be below 50 degrees. Once it's up into like 60, 65 degrees, those warm Indian summer days, yank them off so that you don't overheat them.
that's a pretty simple solution there. Um, and then at nighttime, anytime it's going to go down too cold, bring them in the house. But let it, when it's going to be in the 40s overnight, low 40s, they'll be fine under there, and they'll start to harden earlier, and they'll do better in the garden for you. So those are some simple solutions, rather than saying, oh, the best thing you can do is build a greenhouse. That is the best thing you can do. But these are some ways that you can, uh, let's say, enhance productivity. Now, starting your seeds. Always start your seeds this time of year indoors, and I recommend you put them in a very warm room, or even give them some under underside heating. Uh, a, a low-powered uh, heat mat is one way to do that. Another thing is I have a little, and I learned this from Trioxin on the forum, Matt Huntley, when I interviewed him, I have a little incubator that's designed for hatching eggs. And uh, it's got a perfect temperature control. And I set it to about 78 degrees, and I start my seeds in there, and they do beautiful. But once they're started, you've got to get them exposed to sunlight. If you do get too intensive a sunlight situation other than using fish tanks you can also build very simple frames and use um, kind of the milky white uh, polyfilm the stuff that's fil- that filters the light a little bit and build yourself just a little mini greenhouse out of that just something to say you know you're only talking about starting seeds so you only need something big enough to put a few flats of seeds you know seeds underneath uh, and because you got small seeds again when it's too cold and then they're still going to have problems in the unheated little greenhouse overnight bring them indoors so there you go. That's a simple solution to that, and it'll make you less dependent on the nursery for starting your plants. The other side of that, if I want to grow like one or two of a certain variety of plant and the nursery has it, I buy them from the nursery. Um, if I want to do you know, half a dozen or a dozen plants, I try to start them myself and I start some extras. But if I want like one Cherokee purple tomato or something like that and uh, the nursery has nice healthy plants, don't feel bad for buying them there. But for a large-scale production, you'll save a lot of money by starting your own seeds. And, of course, you'll train yourself to be more independent if we ever have to be. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. That was a great one. Hey, Jack. Preston from Pennsylvania. Great show. Uh, question for you. You talk about 22s a lot. Just got done listening to uh, yesterday's show on the 22. Um, I picked up a Marlin um, 39A, and I'm curious about the uh, so-called bird shot or snake shot or rat shot, um, these rounds. Um, what's their use? Are they useful? Are they good for anything? Um, you know, is that something valuable to have um, with you as well or stock up on as well? Um, again, thanks for the great show. Um, thanks. Bye. Well, first, congrats on the gun. That's a beautiful little gun. One of my favorites, honestly, and one I don't own, but one of my uh, don't need it, but I'm going to have it someday guns. So, cool gun. On the, uh, what they call rat shot or dust shot uh, with a 22. There are a lot of people that believe that that stuff is absolutely positively useless, and I think those people don't understand that just because something is limited doesn't mean it's useless. Um, I find the range of this stuff, um, from a twenty two uh, rifle anyway, to be about, I would say, about 5 yards or 15 feet at the absolute maximum. 4 yards is pretty lethal on small animals. Uh, and they call it rat shot for a reason. Uh, we had a rat problem also with that same grandfather that smoked out the squirrels. And uh, he had trapped all these rats, but... He said, I couldn't get this one rat, man. The rat was too smart for him, right? So he had me sit down in the basement with a twenty-two rifle, actually in the, in the, looking into the basement from a, a stairway entry, one of these down the sta- you know, stairs from the outside uh, type things, with the door just open enough to see, uh, 
with a piece of toast with hot peanut butter on it in the middle of the night, and he said, that rat will come for that peanut butter, and shoot him with this dust shot, and it won't ricochet or anything, and it worked for that, so there was one real-world example. Um, I also had a, a farmer friend of mine that had a real problem with uh, with barn sparrows, and he said it was the greatest thing in the world for getting rid of barn sparrows. The little things are, you walk in the barn and they're just ripping the heck out of a grain bin. And he said you could just take out five or six of them. And if you did that once in a while, for a while, they decided to go somewhere else to uh, fulfill their needs. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a limited, uh, limited weapon. But that's what makes it nice is it can be used at very short ranges without a lot of danger of ricochet or carrying too far or over penetration. It's very, very fine shot. When I was a kid, I used to practice wing shooting with 22 dust shot. I swear to God, this is going to sound funny, but it was a lot of fun. I would walk through these fields behind our place. They had these huge flying grasshoppers. And when you'd flush one, they'd tumble and roll like a quail. And I'd let them get out a little bit of distance, and I'd take shots at them with a 22 dust shot. And I'll tell you what, it, it, it's not easy. Uh, but if you hit them, it knocks them down and kills them. Now, how valuable is that? It's more of a hobby type fun thing. There, um, a lot of people carry them in handguns, specifically for snakes. If you're inclined to shoot snakes, I'm not inclined to shoot snakes. Uh, I do everything I can to avoid ever killing a snake in any circumstance. Uh, I have no desire to kill snakes. I, I go out of my way to try to save snakes. Uh, if somebody phones me up and says, Jack, we've got a problem with a snake here, I'll do what I can to go over and remove that animal or release it somewhere where it's going to be safe for the snake and people for it. But they do have that use as well. But you're looking at a four-yard or less, okay, like 12 feet or less, and you're looking very small animals. I would not insult an animal like a squirrel by shooting it with dust shot. Uh, unless, I don't know, that guy with them in the attic, if you ever see them like five feet away or something, like, Yes, I wouldn't do it, but, you know, I, if it was an attic in a barn, maybe. Uh, but a squirrel's a very strong, very tough animal. These are more for things like uh, rats, uh, large mice, uh, sparrows, Tweety birds. Now, those of you who say if I had to survive on Tweety birds, I could survive on Tweety birds, are perfect for the job. They won't destroy the meat. They won't damage the bird. You can get within four yards of most Tweety birds pretty easy. So for a shit at the fan, they might have some value. My great uncle, when he would take walks, as he was an older gentleman and afraid that he might be assaulted uh, up by the, what they called the water dam up around where our place was kind of back in the woods, would carry a twenty two revolver with him as a, a self-defense weapon. And he said, I'd never want to kill anybody ever again. This guy was a veteran of World War II, uh, and I, I never asked exactly what that meant, but I understood. He said, I never want to kill anybody again ever for the rest of my life, but if they want to hurt me, I'll blind the son of a bitch. And his first chamber of his revolver uh, that would be fired had dust shot in it. And I said, well, what if you need a second shot? He says, I can pull the trigger twice fast if I have to. And he carried that revolver. I think it was an eight-shot revolver, and he carried it with uh, one round of uh, 22 scatter shot, and then the rest, uh, I think, 22 hollow points. So, I mean, it has its uses, but it has limited uses. I like it. I keep some around. I think it's amusing. The best thing I can tell you, though, is go ahead and get a couple of boxes of it, and set up some pieces of uh, cardboard at some various distances and look at the patterns. And uh, find the distance that your rifle will shoot at. I've seen some that shoot it very well and some that don't. There's a twist, you know, in that rifle. And that twist causes those, those pellets to rotate. And that causes that pattern to spread out very quickly. So you've already got a very light shot, 
under a light charge, and now you've got a, a pattern that opens up quickly. So it's going to be short distance, but it's not useless. Uh, you play with it and figure out what it's good for for you. Um, at any distance that it'll break a bottle, it's going to be lethal on small game. That's another thing you can do. Uh, if you've got a place where you can safely break some bottles or even some you know, sporting clays, get some sporting clays and uh, set some sporting clays up and shoot them at various distances and determine the limitations of it for yourself and make an informed decision. Uh, let's take another question. That's a great one. Hi, Jack. This is Cav Sargent from the forums. And I had a question about replacing a tree in my landscape. I'm removing a tree that's adjacent to the house because of its spreading habit, and I want to replace it with something that will make my house more like a homestead, maybe a fruit tree, maybe a nut tree. I'm USDA Zone 5, and I'd just like to know something that maybe you could suggest that as a kind of an upright growth habit that would be helpful uh, getting started and uh, get my house to start paying me back instead of me constantly paying for my house. Thanks, Dan. Keep up the great work, Jack. Well, I think that one of the things you need to look at is that any fruit or nut tree is going to generally have a spreading um, uh, tendency in of itself. So you might have an issue dealing with a tree in that area that doesn't spread out. That said, you can since you're planting it young and, and kind of controlling its growth, you can control the spreading habitat to a large degree. Uh, as it grows, and this is going to have a lot to do with solar exposure, ground conditions, and things like that. Um, I applaud you for replacing the existing tree with something more beneficial to you. Here's a couple different ideas for you in that situation. Number one would be, instead of planting one more big tree, consider planting two or three dwarf or semi-dwarf trees in the same area, keeping them kind of contained a lot more. Another would be if there's a fence line over there or something, maybe instead of growing a traditional tree, you espalar them against a fence line, or maybe you do it against a fence line and against the house if you have the right solar exposure. Again, that's going to be key to whether you can make that work or not. You might also consider coming in with one dwarf tree or semi-dwarf tree and some bushes and things that will get you into production faster. If you're going to plant trees that get higher than your roof, okay, then I have one very big piece of advice for you. In fact, I'd say this is probably good advice with anything other than uh, a dwarf or a bush. Plant nuts, not fruits. Um, Having a cherry tree or a peach tree that's big enough or an apple tree dropping rotted and fruit drippings onto your roof is going to be very inconvenient. Generally, I try to keep fruit trees, uh, especially of those varieties, anything other than like a citrus, pretty far away from a roof because of the drippings. Nuts, you don't have as big of a problem. Uh, uh, an ideal plant for your area would be a hardy variety of almond in that zone 5. There's plenty of almonds that can handle that. Beautiful tree, beautiful flowers. You don't get the drippings of a peach. Great edible. Um, not the best thing in the world for espalaring as far as I know, uh, but kind of a semi-dwarf almond might do really well there. In the end, you got to make your own choice, but I would shy away from any full-size tree because I think you're going to eventually end up with the exact same problem that you have now, which is too much spreading over your roof, if that's you know indeed a problem where you don't want. If it's just an excuse so you can cut the tree down, um, then maybe you do something else. The other thing is how much space is there. So a lot of times what you'll see is a tree is planted in a spot. It's too close to the house. There's no room to plant a tree on the other side of that tree 
while that tree is there. But if we remove it and we go to the other side of the stump, we create greater separation and now the area is open. So I would also look at does the area allow for you to whatever you're going to plant as a replacement to now that the area is opened up to sunlight, get it further away from the house. You never want your trees too close to your house. You want them casting shade shadows, but as the sun angles, you don't want them casting shade shadows because it's there all the time because the problem you have then again is you're, the same thing you're dealing with now. So those are some thoughts on that. Uh, best I can do with the information you gave me. Uh, but I would really look at if you're going to be having any kind of larger trees, go with the nuts versus most of the fruits. Uh, again, almonds I'm a pretty big fan of. Uh, walnuts, uh, maybe a chestnut, but that's going to be a huge spreading uh, tree. So I, I don't really like that. So I would look toward more. Can we move a little bit away? And can we replace one big tree with a couple dwarf and semi-dwarf trees, get some cross-pollination, maybe two different varieties of semi-dwarf apples, and we get some cross-pollination there. And then can we use a layering effect to bring in maybe some gooseberries or something like that and get into production by next year instead of three or four years from now? Uh, look at maybe Nanking Bush Cherry as an understory there. Uh, once you get some more light and you're able to control the growth situation, they might put you into some cherries um, this uh, this summer. Uh, now, they're never going to be big. You're going to let the trees grow up above them, but that would be another thing to look at, uh, possibly adding. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack, Rich Marshall. Love your show. Um, just wanted to see if maybe you had a source for the high-energy biscuits. Uh, been seeing them a lot. The World Food Program hands them out. They've been down in Haiti the most recently. I've done a little research on them. They look like a real interesting food to have around uh, in times of disaster, and yet I can't seem to find a source for them anywhere. wondered if you knew how to get a hold of them and what your thoughts were on high-energy biscuits. I know it's not something you'd eat every day, but uh seems like they must serve a good purpose if the World Food Program hands them out. Just wondered what your thoughts were. Thanks for the great show. Okay, well, um, gotta admit, until this moment, right now, I had never heard of a high energy biscuit, didn't know they were part of, uh, world food relief efforts, uh, and emergency responses, uh, and when I tried to find a supplier of them where they could be purchased, I couldn't find them either. So then I decided, well, what the hell is a high energy biscuit? So I looked up on Wikipedia, and it's basically a wheat cracker reinforced uh, with cereal grain to provide a good broad spectrum of protein uh, and carbohydrates and, and fats. And it's generally made with vegetable fats, uh, so I guess they're using margarine or Crisco or something like that. So as I thought about that, I said, what is the most, uh, most uh, similar thing that I can think of um, period. And my mind went back to American history and hardtack. Hardtack is not the same thing, but it's an interesting comparison. And I think we can learn something from it. Hardtack was basically made out of whole wheat flour, mixed up with lard uh, and water, and baked until it was extremely hard and had an extremely long shelf life, even if even if you threw it in a pocket of a, of a Civil War uh, coat, uh, completely unprotected, uh, it would last a long time. It was used heavily for rations. That's because whole wheat has a large amount of protein and nutritional value in it, a much larger value than uh, a white flour does, right? So yeah, whole wheat flour, we're already halfway there with hardtack, except maybe we don't want it to be that hard. So I thought, maybe somebody's published a recipe for this. Now, here's the thing. I don't know 
Again, I don't know if this recipe really represents high-energy biscuits, the ones that they're actually giving out in Haiti right now. But I found a recipe on Recipizar for something called Tarara Biscuits, um, which says this is a high-energy, high-protein biscuit originally designed for disaster relief. The biscuits keep well over a period of time of store probably. Be careful, though. They're jawbreakers. Well, they're jawbreakers. That sounds like we're getting close to hardtack. Here's the recipe, and I'll put a link in today. 250 grams of butter. I'll have to convert that because I have no idea what 250 grams of butter is. Uh, but we're going with animal fats and a vegetable fat here, so that breaks from the Wikipedia article, but Wikipedia doesn't know all. One and a half cups of brown sugar, one half can of condensed milk, two cups of soy flour, two cups of rolled oats, two teaspoons of baking powder, one half cup of uh, dissected, dissected coconut, um, and 30 grams of sesame seed paste, or I guess that's tahini, uh, that you make, uh, uh, what do you call that, hummus out of. And it says to melt the butter, uh, sugar and condensed milk together in a pot, add the flour, rolled oats, and baking powder, divide mixture in half, spend each on a grease play, cut them up, uh, cook at 150 degrees for 10, 150 degrees centigrade, I have to convert that for 10 to 15 minutes to light golden brown, cut each tray to 25 biscuits, Harden the biscuits a little more. Return to oven, which has been turned off. Leave for another five to ten minutes. When completely cold, park biscuits in plastic, pack biscuits in plastic bags, seal and label. Um, so that's a short. You're never going to write that down. Don't worry. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. There'll be a link to that today. Um, but I'm going to try making those. I'm going to try doing some more research. And this has gotten me thinking. This really has me thinking. What could we come up with that would be a modern equivalent? And more nutritious than hardtack. This seems like a pretty cool idea to have for some long-term storage. And I'll bet you, if you bake that and harden it off like it says to, and um, you then vacuum seal it, I bet the shelf life on that is absolutely, completely insane. So uh, I'll do some research with that and report back to you. But good question, because it's something I wasn't aware of, and I bet you there's a large portion of our audience that had never heard of something like a high-energy biscuit before. So uh, let's see if we can come up with something that would basically be equivalent of making our own ration bars. If anybody knows the source of these things or can verify the ingredients, please let me know. I would like to know exactly what like the World Health Organization is handing out, what's in those things. And we may find that some of the things in those things we don't want and making our own is even a better idea. Uh, Good question. Thank you. And anybody that knows any further information about this, please put it in the comments of today's show notes or send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. It's Matt in Arkansas. I was just calling to leave a comment. I was just listening to your show. I don't remember the show number, uh, but you were talking about um, one of the listener questions was, what can we learn from the earthquake in Haiti? And you made some comments about, you know, there's preppers out there saying things like, look how unprepared these are, people are, and all that. And uh, I thought I'd bring out the point that, you know, that situation, uh, you know, if that happened anywhere, I mean, if you think about it, if you're prepared, let's say, but your house collapses, how are you going to get to your preps if they're underneath piles of concrete? You know, I mean... That's a situation where, as prepared as those people could be, the only thing they might have to rely on is maybe if they had a bug-out bag in a vehicle that wasn't crushed under a building. So, you know, that one, it seems to me like somebody should cut some of those people to slack. I mean, I think 
most preppers in this country, if their house was flattened and they couldn't get to their stuff in it, they'd basically be in the same situation they'd be in if they didn't prep at all, you know. Short of, like I said, maybe having a bug out bag in a car that didn't get crushed and you can get to hit. And, you know, bug out bags three days. So how far is that really going to get you? Anyway, uh, I just thought I'd pass that on. Just an observation. Keep up the good work. You know, my wife has been picking up on this, too. And my wife's a good wife, and she's a good prepper wife. And she lets me do all of these things. And I think it got the more I did the show, the more she got willing to let me do all this food storage stuff and all. And sometimes even she says, I just don't see what's going to ever happen that we're going to need all of this food. And sometimes, you know, recently we looked at some of the things going on in the world, and I showed her things like the Valley of Death in California as the land dies. I've showed her things about the food shortages and all. But what got through to her was the earthquake in Haiti. And she said, but Jack, if our house, exactly what this guy said, if our house drops down on top of all of our food, what do we do? I said, well, see, we've thought of that. At least I've thought of that uh, in my bantering with you to get these things done. First of all, we have food stored in the garage, which if the house came down, the garage doesn't have anything over it, we would probably still be able to get in there. One way or another, sooner or later, we could pick through the rubble, and a lot of it is stored in ways that it would probably still be safe. We also have food in our shed, which is completely separate from the house, and if the shed collapses, that could easily be uh, uncovered and and gotten back to and, and utilized. We have a second home, and we have food there. When we move to that second home and make it our primary home, one of the first things I'm going to do is build basically what amounts to a root cellar that will not be attached to the home. All right, so that's, that's, you know, another scenario altogether. I also told her, I said, you know, what we live in homes that would not be likely to collapse in the manner that they did in Haiti. Um, I, I agree with, let's cut these guys some slack, because if you lived in a cinder block house in Haiti, you could have everything in the world you needed to be prepared, that cinder block house is going to come down and create a rubble bed that's going to destroy most of what's inside it, and hopefully you weren't in there because you're probably dead if you were. And if you weren't getting to your stuff, it may be almost impossible. But modern homes in America and throughout most of the world would fare better in an earthquake. Our big fear here of damage to the home is a tornado. A tornado could come through and rip the roof off the house or a piece off the house. We have food spread throughout the house. Hopefully, some of our preps would still be available to us. Uh, But anything other than flattening it down to the foundation, which is possible, right, we, we would still have some stuff that's recoverable. And we still have a secondary location. This is why I'm so big on secondary locations and and storing food in multiple locations and your emergency items in multiple locations. And as was mentioned here, taking your bug out bag and keeping it in your vehicle. So at least you have that that's outside. Hopefully, like you guys said, you know, the house doesn't come down on top of the vehicle. But the reality is we can't sit here and live in fear that whatever we do to prep will be wiped out. We have to prep anyway. And in most situations, most situations... What we do to prep will some portion of be available to us, right? That's the key. And to think about things like that. That's what I said. One of the big lessons of Haiti is not just to be prepared, but to think about how you can protect your preps so the very disaster that you've saved them up for doesn't destroy them as well. Um, and that's also for things like, let's be practical. The type of disasters that flatten houses are generally localized. So now we go to practical preparedness. Cash, money in the bank, no debt, insurance, right? 
And if you got to keep that credit card, hell with it, a backup credit card. Right? At least you can go check into a hotel instead of going to a shelter while you get on the phone with State Farm or Allstate or whatever and start trying to get things put back together. Now, I'm also a realist. A Hurricane Katrina thing might be five years before State Farm's helping you, if at all, as they try to get out of paying billions of dollars in claims. But let's also be a realist that those are the atypical event, and the more typical events are localized. So when we look at destruction of a home, it's generally a localized event. So now we fall back on the common sense, practical preparations that society makes as a whole, and our food storage is more for lost jobs, things like a trucker's strike, civil unrest, crop failures, economic collapse. In an economic collapse, your house doesn't just collapse. It could be in danger of being ransacked or whatever. But you get my point. Everything has checks and balances. And if we follow the rules of being prepared, Right for things if they get bad or even if they don't. If we follow all those rules and we think very practical in our preparations, we'll stand through 99% of disasters, not unscathed, but we'll still be standing at the end of the day. The other reason we need to give these people some understanding in Haiti is most of them are extremely poor. They worry about, do I have enough money to eat today, not let alone, how can I store food for tomorrow? Or how can I, you know, will I find clean water to drink today? Um... And the other lesson is don't pack two million people in an impoverished society into that small dense of an area. Uh, that's a tremendous mistake, and that's a big part of what happened there too. Uh, that's why I'm for people reducing population density. Um, I think pop, global population, I don't think there's a problem with it. If it doesn't keep growing at this you know, un, unfettered rate. I don't for reducing population, but population densities. Let's spread people out a little bit more. Uh, let's let people learn to use the land a little bit more. And the reality is a freestanding house has only so much danger from things like earthquakes. But when we have rows and rows and rows of them on top of each other, we create a domino effect. That's another thing that happened there. But, yeah, we got to cut these guys some slack, guys. Most people have, but I've seen some pretty snide comments from people in some forums and things like that. And I don't think there's any place or any call for it. And, and last but not least, we've donated some money. I, I think this is a good cause. If you have some extra money, if you can afford to do it, they still need a lot of help down there. Um, you know, a lot of places make it really easy. We, you know, we did it at their supermarket. We went by the supermarket for shopping and they said, hey, do you want to donate something to Haiti? And we said, hey, man, throw 50 bucks on it. Right, so if you can consider doing it, those people need help. Um, and, and don't look down at them because it could be you. It could be you. You, you really don't know when something uh, catastrophic could happen. And even if you're prepared, um, you might not be prepared enough, and you might not realize it until it happens. So let's uh, have our thoughts, prayers with those folks down there and understand they're fellow human beings. They're not just Haitians. All right, let's take another question. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Matt in Arkansas again. Okay, real quick. Question first, and then the filler. The question is, uh, looking for some creative ideas to improve drainage in my soil in my garden. Okay, here's the filler. Uh, basically, we were looking at doing raised beds this year, but we added up the cost, and uh, I could probably afford the lumber to build the raised beds, uh, but I don't have enough money for the fill. Uh, I'm going to have to have topsoil brought in and compost and some other stuff, and make a mix and all that, and fill my bed. So this year not going to happen. We don't have money for it. So we're looking at growth in the ground. Uh, we're just going to amend the soil that's already there. Um, 
And but the problem is, I live in an area that is notorious for clay. Uh, I live in Northwest Arkansas, and bad drainage uh, and compound things. Uh, last summer, we had more rain than I've ever seen here. Uh, this winter, the way it's going, I'm thinking this summer is going to be another one with lots and lots of rain. I think drainage is going to be a problem for my plants like it was last year. So I'm looking for ways that don't cost a lot of money to somehow make my ground drain better without raising beds. So uh, there's the challenge for you if you're up to it. All right. Thank you. Uh, good question. That's going to be the wrap-up question for the day. Um, not long ago, I would have said to you that I think that the best thing you could do is uh, dig out a huge amount of that clay soil, take some of it away, and put in a ton of soil amendments. Organic matter, a little bit of sand, uh, maybe some expanded shale, um, compost, anything you can do to improve that soil, uh, and, and to dig it way down maybe a foot deep. I'm going to take a different approach with you this time. I'm going to say, let's do a little bit of raised beds, but let's not do it with uh, the use of uh, any type of boards or, or lumber or any type of containment system. Let's just start building up and using the soil that you have and using it smartly. Let's go out and instead of buying all the materials to put your raised beds in, let's bring in a big load of compost, okay, uh, good quality compost from whatever source you can get it from, uh, and let's bring in some, uh, let's bring in some peat moss, and let's bring in a ton of mulch. So that you can go about wherever you're uh, going to have your garden, you can constantly keep it throughout the growing season about two inches deep. Um, let's go in there. Let's let's kill your grass. Um, you might want to go ahead and start doing that right now. Go out and mark your beds out right now where you want them to be. Lay down cardboard. Put the mulch on top of them. And just leave it there until you're ready to do the digging, which is probably a good idea to do a little bit later. It's cold. The ground is saturated wet right now. Let that, that'll start, to, you, you'll be surprised what that clay soil will look like in two months when you go out there to dig your beds up, right? So a couple of months later, pull all the mulch to the side, get yourself a big piece of plywood or something to throw it on so it's easy to put back on, and, and just go in there and dig a couple inches down and start mixing in some compost and some peat moss. Don't try to go too deep. Don't make a big deal out of it. Let it go ahead and pile up into a little bit of a pile. Then mulch the hell out of it. And then continuously throughout the season, add compost and organic matter. Pull back the uh, mulch, put it down, uh, keep doing that. And don't worry about it. And what you'll find is even the subsoil will get opened up in time if you never walk on it. Um, this is more of a permaculture technique. Like I said, a year ago, I would have had a totally different answer. been double digging and all. And what I've realized with that is it's still pointless. Because what happens if you dig a big, deep uh, bed down into clay soil is you create a pot. You get a great, 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 great big clay pot. Even though that soil drains well, it only drains well until it hits the soil outline. And then basically you created a pond. So you've got to come up some to allow it to drain out to the sides. And then your plants will go down to depths where they're comfortable with the moisture level. And then stop cursing your soil, uh, your clay soil. I used to think clay soil is the worst thing in the world. Bill Mollison's uh, work taught me that clay soil is wonderful because it actually retains a lot of moisture. 
So that's the approach I would take. I would take to maybe of a bermed raised bed approach, bringing in some organic matter, not overstressing it, spending the money on compost, maybe a little bit of peat moss to mix in with that. Uh, maybe half a bale to a bed is probably more than sufficient. Uh, if you want to put some expanded shale in there too, that'll help. A little bit of green sand for some mineralization. But stick to just mulching it. You honestly probably could get away with this. I'm not sure. It depends on how wet we're talking. You could probably go out there, lay down cardboard, wherever you want it, mulch the hell out of it right now. When it's time to plant, pull the mulch back, chop through the cardboard, plant right into your subsoil, cover it back up with mulch, and do nothing else. And it'll probably grow better than you ever thought it would. Because you won't disturb the soil, you won't get that boost of oxygen, but you won't begin to lose the value of the soil right away. And what will happen if you create that environment above the surface, and you're constantly adding organic matter and mulch above your surface, all the little soil creatures will till, and that black soil, that black clay or that red clay, all of a sudden one day you'll dig down in there, and it'll be all nice and crumbly. Here's what I'm going to bet. As bad as your soil is, if you go find a wood lot, Right now, uh, that's, that's wooded and treated, it's been wooded and treated for 25 years, and put a shovel into that ground. Even though it's the same ground, it's going to look totally different. It's going to be crumbly, and it's going to have good structure. Well, there's still the same uh, amount, especially once you're down a couple inches of clay down there. The difference is what's going on underneath with anaerobic activity, aerobic activity, bacterial activity, uh, worms, and all types of other little creatures that live in and mine and do the tilling of the soil for you. So you might even not dig at all, and it might work. Again, it depends on how your property is laid out. If you're going to be putting your garden into a low spot, you probably are going to have to build up some. If it's on a higher spot of the yard, you're probably going to be able to just mulch the hell out of it and no dig whatsoever. I know that flies right in the face of conventional wisdom, but if you're going to put two beds in, try one that way before you start expanding, and you might be really surprised. The key is a ton of mulch. Two, three, four inches deep at all times, right? Start making that soil environment something that's attractive to the little buggers that'll do all the work for you. All the reason clay uh, is so poor with drainage isn't just that it's clay; it's because it's compacted clay. If you have little beads of clay, it, it sucks as much moisture as it can. And then it lets the rest run in between the little spaces. When you have compacted clay, it's not so much that the clay is absorbed as much as it can, but the top surface of the clay absorbs the water. And then once that happens, and it starts to become hydrophobic after that point, it won't let the water seep any deeper, because as you go deeper into the compacted layers, the absorption is reduced. Then the water stays up on the surface. Your land is probably not as wet as you think it is. If you dug a hole, it'll fill in once you dig it, but when you first dig a hole, once you're down about six inches, it's going to be a lot drier down there. That water's not getting down into those layers because of the compaction. So I guess another thing you could do is go in there with like a broad fork and don't um, dig the soil, but go in with a broad fork and puncture and rock the soil and loosen the soil and then mulch over top cardboard that to stop all the grass that's growing there and then mulch over top of that and never walk on it again for the rest of your life make it make your beds no wider than you can reach in from both ends you should never walk on your bed so there's an answer for that hopefully that helps other people clay soil is really a problem uh, for a lot of people because they, they fight it with warfare don't fight it with warfare. Use nature. Trust me, wherever you're at with clay soil, somewhere you'll see a great big woodlot and all kinds of wild things just growing there, and they don't have any problem with the drainage. 
That's because they have layer upon layer of natural mulch as the trees lose their leaves every year. Recreate that environment, embrace nature, work together with it. It's actually much harder to deal with sandy soil because now we have to bring in amendments to retain moisture. That's a much more difficult scenario than heavy clay soil. Uh, again, the reason we have problems with heavy clay soil because we go to war with it. Stop going to war with it, embrace the part of it that makes it beneficial, and you'll find a symbiotic solution that will allow you to do a lot more growing than you ever thought you could with the soil that you had. With that, I'm going to wrap up today. Love hearing from the audience. Love doing shows like this. We're going to keep doing Call in Friday as long as the calls keep coming in and stacking up, and I don't see any problem with that going forward. Uh, please do make your questions point blank up front. Uh, they're more likely to get through my screening process. Here's the question. I like that last one. Here's the question. Here's the background on it. Do your Send me email questions, too, for the Monday shows. Do it the same way. Give me your question. If you can't get your question out in two sentences, you're probably not sure what your question actually is. Give me the question, then give me all the background book material you want. I'll take what I need from that. But if you write me a book and the question's in the bottom, probably not going to read it, and I might not listen to it if you take more than... Uh, you know, 40 seconds to get to what your question is when you call in. Uh, with that said, um, I want you to call in, so don't see that as a negative. Um, I do want to, you know, kind of wrap up this show today. It's a Friday. We're going into a weekend. I want to remind you guys I'm going to be down in in, uh, in the Austin area, not really Austin. can't tell you exactly where because it's only been released and people are attending. But uh, if you're going to be at the Primitive Workshop with uh, Backyard Food Production, I'll be there. I look forward to meeting you, shaking your hand, getting to know you. That's going to be fun. I'm going to be up and out the door by like 4.15 in the morning tomorrow. Uh, so i got to get up early, but I think it's worth it to go out and meet some TSPers and go to a really cool workshop. Check out Backyard Food Production for future workshops. I think these three, January, February, and March, are all sold out. Um, and uh, the other thing I want to do is remind you to keep on working, keep on prepping. I want to tell you about a little project that I'm going to start doing. I don't know if I'm going to video for it today because i got to get ready to get out of here, but I'm going to start doing videos. I've got two five-gallon buckets. And I'm buying just food from the store and things like that. And these videos are going to be one, two minutes a piece. And they're going to be different items going in the buckets. And I don't know what it's going to look like when we're done yet. It's just a random trip here and a random trip there. And here's some long-term storage, that. And vacuum seal this and put it in there. At the end, we're going to have two buckets uh, that are designed to store for at least two years or longer. With all the items in there, completely labeled. The caloric intake. Uh, everything that we have and the total cost. And we're going to do that project together on YouTube a little bit out of the time to help people see that this does not have to be complicated. Now, I know I'm going to get some YouTube armchairs. I hate the armchair quarterbacks out there, the armchair survivors. You didn't include this in your bucket. How could you? Oh, God, I hate people like that. I want to tell you right now, if you, if you listen to my show and you're one of these sniper guys on YouTube and you comment insultingly on YouTube, your comments get nuked. That's not censorship. I don't allow you to insult me. I don't allow you on my forum to insult other people. Um, and, and those people have got to go. So don't even bother. But the rest of you, let's let's look at, hey, give me the ideas. Instead of saying, you're so stupid, you didn't, and your 16-year-old kid popping your zits while you're doing it. Um, how about, hey, you know what would be the next great item to include? Let's see if we can do that project together. It probably won't be up until Monday or Tuesday next week. But we'll get that thing rolling. I've got a lot of things ready to go with it already. Um, and we won't be getting too much in into during the project vacuum sealing and, and uh, what do you mylar bags and things like that that'll be kind of at the end once we have everything we we filled them up there's no more space we'll talk about O2 absorbers and mylar and what we'll end up with is two emergency buckets with two years or more storage capacity 
that can go anywhere and will figure out how long they can feed people based on servings and caloric intake and the total cost of doing that. And maybe we will learn a lot together along the way because I want you guys prepared for whatever comes your way. And it doesn't always take a big investment. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of creativity and practicing that old axiom, eat what you store, store what you eat. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.